Heraclitus was the philosopher of mind and fire, and he said that all was in continual transformation, an everlasting fire kindling in measures and going out in measures. Do you ever think of such things when you contemplate current times? Our civilization is in fast flux now. I tend to think of it all in terms of libertarian social theory, but not just that, obviously. I bring a sort of Heraclitian perspective to social change, which is probably not the norm, which is not to say that libertarianism has stood still since I argued my way into it four decades ago, which is why I chatted with Stefan Kinsella. He is almost as old a hand in this political space as I am, and he is more active in the intellectual movement, authoring an oft-quoted treatise against intellectual property and several important scholarly articles in rights theory. I wanted to ask him about what he thinks of the current complexion of the libertarian movement, but our conversation was itself a thing of flux. My name is Timothy Verkula, and for The Fire, this is the Locofoco Netcast. I know I came across this sometime in my upbringing, and it was the idea that, like, the common law, like in England or, say, in America, um, if you, like, if you only had the last, say, 30 years worth of cases, like starting in 2020 and going backwards for the last 30 years, and you lost everything before that, you would still have 98% of the common law in the last 30 years of cases because they always refer back to and repeat the old ones, right? Right. But I, right. Can't, I can't find that anywhere, so I don't know where I got that from or what the actual – logic was but it makes sense to me maybe i made it up but i don't think so i don't want to take credit for something i didn't you know but it it's sort of like if we lost all the encyclopedias more than 50 years old we would still probably have most scientific knowledge in the more in the more recent books you know what i mean i hope that's true something like that yeah yeah now you were referring to a particular aphorism about the common law. Is it, do you remember what the aphorism is? Well, that's what I'm saying. The, the idea is that uh, all of the common law is embodied in a, in the most in the in, in just a recent period of time. Okay, so it sounds like Blackstone. Maybe it might be. I've never read Blackstone. I've tried to. It's hard. I find it hard to read antiquated uh, uh, works. Uh, Anything more than about a hundred hundred years old drives me nuts. Just the way they write and speak. Okay, that's a that's an interesting problem. Considering that I like that period, one hundred fifty to hundred years ago, that's my favorite period of literature. Well, maybe you can go back about two hundred, but uh, you know, from basically the founding of the U.S. and before that, the language is so flowery and stilted and formal and different in some ways right uh, oh it is very different i i sort of wonder yeah. if our modern if our modern internet and connectedness is going to help and the fact that we have recordings of, of people speaking in movies in 1980 and 1960 and 1920 like is that going to kind of present the drift of language and accents and dialects and all that or obviously it won't prevent it because we, we keep coming up with new terms new slang right it has slowed down evolutionary change and okay well that's what yeah i'm kind of yeah so it's it's like a drift of the language and the dialect yes, yes. It, but I, I think it could slow down the, the drift of the dial of the of the pronunciation that yes. might stay more common 
But yeah. of course, people are going to always coin new terms, you know. Right, right. Uh, that's like, that's precisely where we're at. I'm hoping actually to to. It's part of my uh, linguistic agenda is that when it comes to lexical drift, that is the semantic drift of mm -hmm. meanings of terms. Mm. I think that terms that are changing for the bad or changing to uh, right now or have been changing for a while. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sort of a rear guard action against those changes often because the changes are usually no good. My favorite example is always prodigal. Uh, most people have almost have really lost what the mean word means because of you know one liner note in the King James version of the Bible. But mm. uh, but losing that term has a problem, and the problem is that people lose a concept because now it means something different. It means wayward. It doesn't mean uh, over generous. So that's a problem for us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually there's probably lots there's I know there's lots of examples of that and, and I find it interesting but it it is you could say it's sad but it's also a natural part of the way language I mean we wouldn't have language now if it hadn't developed but to develop it has to have a process and the process involves evolution, right? So Right. I but I just wonder if the internet and ubiquitous communication and the way that we have recordings of things now is going to uh, lock it in a certain, in a certain. Plus, the fact that we have more standardized uh, rules now, right? Right. Like, if you look at the Constitution, they they quote unquote misspell lots of words because it wasn't as, as standardized back then. Right? Well, there wasn't even really any good dictionaries at the time. Right. I mean, Webster's hadn't been made, and Johnson's was more literary than. Uh, useful right so we have that now so i wonder if that will well anyway yeah that's an interesting question uh i think it, i think pronunciations have slowed down a, uh, pronunciation changes have slowed down a great deal well i'm always always mystified that like we still have i don't know how many languages are there spoken on the earth maybe five thousand or something or a thousand it's quite a few uh english is but it has sort of become the the, the lingua franca i guess a, yeah. a universal second language instead of Esperanto, right, or instead of French. But uh, right. but people keep their current their local dialects going. Some do, others go, and and then of course we uh, weep tears for the passing of some languages. Most of those tears are not necessary, but some of them might be. Some of them we may be lo losing some important things. I wonder about what was lost when Sumerian ceased being spoken. Mm. It's just an interesting time. It's an interesting thing that we have a language in the past that has no relationship to any modern language. Well, what about Latin? I mean, Latin, in a way, is the most important language of all, you could argue, but I don't think anyone really speaks it. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, people study it, but they don't really speak it, really. Right. Well, for one thing, we have two forms of Latin, and that's a problem because the, the big difference was how you pronounce the words. So we say Cicero, but the Latins, you know, the Romans said Cicero. What, wasn't so, there was it wasn't there some funny gaffe that George Bush or someone made when he said something like he thought in Latin America they spoke Latin or something like that? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I heard some study from some linguist recent uh, a few years ago. The idea was that if you look at the way the pronunciation of English has changed over the centuries the theory is that the way that the actors let's say in shakespeare's time would have spoken 
was closer to the current American accent than the current British accent or English accent. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, but we don't know because we don't have recordings, but you can, you can figure some things out from the way some things are, uh, are written down when they try to do, uh, uh, you know, they try to imitate what things sound like. Uh, what's that? You know, the, the, I forgot the word, but the word for, uh, 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 trying to express how something sounds. Uh, well, phonetics. Yeah, just phonetically. So there's there's clues in writing that give you a clue oh. to the way the the accent was right. back in those days, and they think that it was closer to the American, the current American accent than English. So we're speaking the way Shakespeare used to speak, or something like that. Well, sort of. <laughs> Though I think that there was a lot of some things like the O-U-G-H's, you know, the G-H sounds, mm -hmm. were actually pronounced back in those times, and no one mm. pronounced them at all, except maybe in Scotland or something, you know. I don't know what the hell they're doing. Um. <laughs> it's still fast. I think it's fascinating. It's like one of these things, I don't know how you, I, I always think of like five or six careers I could have majored in or done that would have been a whole different life, but, you know, like, being an astrophysicist, maybe, or you know, a professor at Oxford, or you know, I mean, or or something, you know, um, or rest. Yes, I do. Yeah, I think about those things a lot as well, because of course, the longer you live, the the number of opportunities dwindles. Fast. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you, the, the forks you keep eating up your opportunity cost forks, and uh, yeah, yeah. Like I will never be a Navy SEAL at this point. Right. It's too late. Say that with a hundred percent certainty. Yeah. Probably never That's could have been anyway, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could have either, uh, just simply because of certain structural problems like weak ankles, things like that. Yeah. Well anyway, uh here we are. It's uh the end of August two thousand twenty. And I'm Is, talking with you and you actually welcome you to That's Well, I don't know the exact date. It's the twenty I mean, seventh. I just bit... checked. It's August the twenty seventh. <laughs> I like to be vague about this because it'll take me a while to get this thing up online. <laughs> well, just just for for posterity, uh, Hurricane uh, Laura just missed Houston last night and went to Lake Charles. So we have a nice sunny day here in Houston. We we ha I had my bad bathtubs full of water. I went and bought fifteen gallons of water. You know, I had beans and we were prepared for a, a major hurricane, but it went to Lake Charles instead. So, uh, well, that's what that's what today is for me. It's the day of. Not being hit by a hurricane. Very good. Uh, today is a nice day for me as well, but we had no hurricane warnings on, on on the deck. I'm here and I'm not mowing the lawn. That's actually was that's that's the real significant thing for me is that right now I'm talking with you and not mowing the lawn. So that's a much lower level uh, life event and life opportunity there. You mow your own lawn. Well, not really. That's the problem is that the guy I have mows the lawn hasn't been mowing the lawn. So, uh, so somebody's got to do have it. A lawn you have a lawnmower? Oh, yeah. I have several, actually. For the same reason you have all these Macintoshes? Well, kind of. Uh, mainly because I loathe uh, s small engines, that is, uh, gasoline-powered engines. I lo don't like them. I don't like the way they work. So I've been moving towards right. electric if I have to do something. Oh, yeah. My neighbor has one of those electric little lawnmowers. It's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The problem for me with lawn, I like. I actually had toyed with the idea of buying one of those old push reel ones that you, because I have such a small lawn because we live in the city. But the problem is, 
you still have to pay people to do the weeding and all the other stuff. Otherwise, unless you want to do all that, which I don't want to. So it, it would save me like literally no money because the lawn mowing part is not anywhere near a significant part of the cost. I pay these guys to maintain all the stuff my wife has in the yard. So I gave up. Plus, I I mowed I mowed I mowed four or five acres of lawns when I was a kid, week week after week after week in the hot Louisiana sun, and I'm glad I did it. But when I grew up and got a real job, I said I'm not going to change my own oil anymore, and I'm not going to ever mow grass again. That's a life goal that I can understand. That is certainly one that I can understand. And my dad, of course, is eternally upset with me about that. But uh, you're going to Jiffy Lube. Yes, Dad. <laughs> I do. Don't you know how to change your own? I said, yeah, I know how because I did it, but I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> right. I actually have to change the air filter on my car myself because it's a peculiar. Yeah. It's a peculiar air filter. I can't let it be done by anyone else, and that's kind of, and, I, and so I've. It's been two months and I haven't done it, so that's kind of unfortunate. Well, if you have the right equipment and the right setup, you got your ramp. You know, you got to have the ramps, to re- and you got to have the right tools and the right oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. If you know what you're doing, and you enjoy it. Okay, but I think mo- the modern cars, in a way, they're better, but in a way, they're worse, right? Because they they don't need as much maintenance usually, and but it's also not possible for a normal guy to. Oh yeah, but you getting in an engine. You have some old classic Ford Model T or something, right? Even cars, you know, from the seventies. You open a hood, and it's sparse and beautiful under there, and you can get to everything almost. Right. Now now you do that, and you look at it, and, and it looks like you're dealing with Metropolis. It's yeah. Just a, it's, a, it's a convoluted mess of things that's a, beyond my con- comprehension. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, we've, we've already strayed several times before we even get to the start. Kinsella does this quite often lately. Kinsella is a mischief creator <laughs> which is okay i guess yeah. uh, but i before we get to the meat of what i wanted to talk about because uh i do have issues that you know something about but you also have written a book it's coming out is that correct uh which one there's a law book you're coming out i saw it briefly on, on my screen the other day my copy literally yesterday it came it finally came it was published in march in oxford and um uh, it, I, I didn't get my copy until yesterday, uh, and I was wondering if it was actually published. They told me it was published, and I'm like, well, it's August. I haven't seen a copy. I don't know. So it finally reached me. So, yeah, it came out It came out either in March or yesterday, however you date it. So what is that called? International – hold on. I'll go get it. It's right here in the kitchen. I have to okay. – they sent me two copies, and they're 250 bucks each, so I have to decide what to do with a second. Yeah. Probably yeah. give it to my dad. I mean, whoever I give it to won't read it, so I guess it doesn't matter from that point of view. I'll show you another thing I just got, too. It's kind of cool because uh, you're into publishing and editing and all this. So. Um, here's the book. Uh, That's an impressive-looking book. That's the kind of thing you see in uh, law libraries. Yeah. yeah. Oxford. And it's, so the it's, title is International... International Investment, Political Risk, and Dispute Resolution, Re- Dispute Resolution A Practitioner's Guide, Second Edition. Okay. I published the first edition in 2005, so it took me 15 years to find a third a third co-author to update it. So he did all the work of updating it. This guy from uh, Noah Rubens and I did the first edition in 2005. Okay. 
And uh, Noah is an American lawyer living in Paris. Uh, extremely smart and uh, one of the world's greatest international arbitration attorneys. Um, and uh, although coincidentally, he was born in Louisiana because he had a military dad. He was passing through, got born on a military base there, but he has otherwise no connection. He has like highfalutin degrees. And the other guy is uh, – Thomas is a, a, a law professor in Cyprus who is also written – he's younger, so he has energy, and he wrote – so he 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 did most of the work on updating. And that is quite a name. Let's just say that is that is a name uh, and a mouthful. Thomas Nectarios Papanastasiou. Yeah, I was uh, glad that you pronounced that. He must be Greek. I think yeah. I think Cyprus is half Greek and half Turk. Turkish or something. Yeah. So, and I just got this a couple of days ago. This is the the print version of the final volume of Libertarian Papers because we stopped publishing it uh, last year. So we published our tenth and final volume last year. Interesting. I've never it's even kind of seen old... a copy. That's that's pretty cool. Did you see it? Yeah. Is it backwards? To you no, no, it's it it's fine. It's fine. But to me, it's backwards. Um, yeah. Um. So I just I I paid someone to do the file, and it's four hundred and thirty or forty pages. But you know, it's amazing. You can use Amazon's Kindle digital publishing platform and just publish a book yeah it's it's, it's just how incredible. much are you charging for a libertarian paper is the last volume uh i, I try just i charge what we charge for all the previous ones 19 okay. i think 1995 okay and i think uh i think i get maybe six bucks per copy or something um with the way they do the cost no because it's print on demand right right I've seen a number of uh, contents pages. Uh, it's quite a variety of stuff. A lot of it seemingly quite recondite. Uh, what does that mean, recondite? Well, let's just say that it seems to be of a high professional scholarly quality. Uh, that is, the subjects de dealt with and the manner in which they are dealt seems to be uh, not written for the masses. This is definitely technical stuff. No, it, it was it was it was more like li uh, journal journal of libertarian studies. It's right. more like a, or reason papers. It's more that kind of uh right, right. stuff. Yeah. I love those two uh, journals. Uh, journal of libertarian studies. Uh, in fact, I just read an article of yours from 1996 that appeared in the JLS. Oh, uh, the one on uh, new rationalist directions in libertarian No, it was on punishment. Oh. Oh, okay. Uh, was that ninety? Well, was that earlier? Uh, I don't remember. It's, it's, it, that sounds about right. But um, so that's going to appear in modified form in a. So I have another book coming out probably in two months uh, on my libertarian stuff called "Law in a Libertarian World," um, and I'm working on that right now. I've been saying that for eight years, but I'm actually I actually have two people hired that are helping me with the cover and the layout and the bibliography and the indexing so i'm i'm actually coronavirus has helped me do that so but that that article i published it in the jls but then i maybe three two three months later i i i modified it a little bit and i published it in a law review the loyal of los angeles law review oh um and i'm combining those two for the book because there's some stuff that's in one that's not in the other like I had to take out some of the radical stuff for the law review, but because it was later, I had a few updated footnotes or something like that. Uh, so um, 
I remember when I submitted it, I, I, I've, over the years, I've, I've published several law review articles on legal topics, standards, legal stuff, or even stuff like this. And uh, I play these games, or I've learned to play these games with these publishers. Like, for example, law reviews are usually edited by the law students. So they're not always like, it's a weird, it's a weird system. Okay. And you could submit like 100 to 100 law reviews at the same time, unlike in the humanities. It's a whole different system but so i submitted this article and i called it a theory of rights or something like that no a theory of punishment and then when they accepted it for publication during the editing process i simply told one of these law students okay would you just add the word libertarian in the title because i didn't want to submit it to them with that in the title so now so they they, the law student didn't know the difference he okay fine so it's a libertarian theory of punishment rights or something like that um but I, I didn't I, – so I didn't I didn't tip my hat when I submitted it. you know. And there was another one like 20, 20 years ago, and I used the pronoun he like as the generic, like, oh, as an example, he would do this. I, and, and they tried to change it to he slash he, she, or to she, and I, 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 I fought with them on it. And they – so what they did was they let me keep my toxic masculine – style but they they dropped a footnote and they said editor's note the author has insisted that we keep the word he here or something like that so that's in the article like a note from the law review this is 20 years ago before the yeah before it got crazy before me too <laughs> crazy yeah and i probably couldn't get, get away with that now at least they right. let me win but they had to drop a snide footnote right now i think it was in jan narvison that i first saw a college professor you know uh, scholarly writing in yeah. which all the examples were she uh because most of the citations were of male writers so all the examples you know the, the hypothetical examples yeah. all were she yeah and i've seen that and, and you'll see that on occasion nowadays with some liber- left libertarians and you know sometimes it's okay but sometimes it's strained especially if it's a you know, if you're, if you're talking about college football or something, it's like, <laughs> yeah. what if she doesn't get admitted to the program? It's like, come on. Yeah, I remember I was actually politically active like in the early 90s or late 80s uh, in Port Townsend, Washington, and I helped out a bunch of anti-nuke people and, uh, you know, anti-bomb kind of stuff. And we were they wanted a form letter, uh, just a form card. Uh, print it out so everybody could use it easily, and I did. Mm-hmm. And one of the women says, "But you say he here." And says, "We're addressing an actual representative of the United States, and it's a male. It's a man." <laughs> oh, okay, she said. Is that I mean, permissible? Right. Yeah, it was just bizarre that her first instinct was to object to the sole male referent when we were dealing with a male, a man. It was odd. Yeah. And we do a lot of that these yeah. days because people are just so, well, it is political correctness, which is kind of what I wanted to talk to you about on this episode of the uh, Local Fogo Netcast is the polarization in society and within the libertarian movement. Because you've had a lot of, well, you're in the libertarian movement pretty thick and deal with a lot of libertarians. And you often complain about some libertarians and their uh, their odd ways of going about uh debating and talking with other people i sometimes wonder if i'm really 
a libertarian because when I talk to some libertarians, I feel alienated. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I think I'm used. I, of course, I'm a libertarian, but I, I I think that libertarian for me might mean something different. I think there's an activist type of libertarian, right? And of course, all the stuff I've done, you could say I'm I'm more activist than most most of them them, but not activist in the terms of pol the political party movement stuff. Like they're they're like basically radicalized Republican blue haired women who run around with with you know stickers on their car and t-shirts, and they go to rallies and they vote and they get behind a candidate and think they're going to win and march that kind of stuff. So that's one maybe difference uh, between I – mean, I've always been more academic and intellectual and into the theory stuff, and I thought that was what libertarianism was because that was what attracted me to it. That's how I learned. I mean you're a little bit older than me, so you've been in this movement probably longer than I have, so maybe you – and you were Liberty Magazine and all that. But even Liberty Magazine, I wouldn't say it was scholarly, but it was definitely – for intelligent libertarians and written by a lot of intelligent libertarians, right? That was literally how we thought of it, yes. And parts of it were scholarly. And so the impression I have of the libertarian movement is in the beginning it was very tiny and small and, and nascent and not even even called that. You know, Ayn Rand's in the 50s and 60s, you know, Leonard Reed, Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman all emerging. Then the libertarian movement sort of coalesced with with the growing influence of Rand and Milton Friedman and the Foundation for Economic Education and then others like Rothbard and Ethan Mises and Hayek and all that. Um, and I still think it was way smaller then than it is now, bigger than it was in the beginning. It wasn't just 20 people in the world, but it was you know thousands. But they were probably on average less radical than today's libertarians are. But they were more intellectual. First of all, most of them had read most of the relevant stuff because there was less relevant stuff to have read, right? Oh, yeah, surely. Like yeah. There, there was only a couple dozen things that you need to have read to basically have completed you know, 82% of the, of, of the corpus of libertarian main thought. Now it's there's so much, which is good, but it's like the Ron Paul movement sort of – kind of took over and the activists and the students and and so there's more of them and in a way there's more anarchists i think than there used to be but no one's ever read anything like i <clears throat> they're listening to things like this like youtube channels and podcasts and you know uh i don't know does that your impression do you think that that's kind of correct yes although i just think it's a partly a response of the internet because when we were young and interested in the ideas of libertarianism and libertarian ideas of all si of all sorts in fact almost all political ideas where do we go to we had to go to literature and we had to go to reading we had to do reading right. but nowadays you can go to a podcast like this one or right. better like dave smith or somebody who's really popular right and and you've gotten some information you've you've sated your desires for learning something about liberty. So you don't need to go further. Uh, we we were desperate, so we <laughs> we went a long ways in various directions. But nowadays... You oh, I, 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 yeah. We, uh, 
laissez-faire books catalog, I think, was one of the major essential drivers of the movement in a sense, right? It was like an essential resource. I, I don't know how many books and even audio tapes I bought from them uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it was crazy. I never uh, bought an audio tape. that's how you had to do hmm. things. Did, did they sell audio tapes as well? Yeah, not a lot, but yeah, there were some, sure. Yeah, okay. like the, the, the debate that John Ridpath and Leonard Peikoff did in 1984. Oh, I or maybe that. I got that from maybe I got that from Ayn Rand groups or something. But uh, no, there were definitely some audio tapes there. Okay. Um, but you know, you had to go through some effort, and if you wanted to contact someone, you would write them a letter. I remember this is crazy. I mean, one of my best friends still to this day is a guy named Jack Chris, who's a uh, uh, he was an objectivist kind of guy, but like a libertarian, a fellow libertarian guy my age in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is about four four hours away this is not and i remember i was writing to david kelly by in hand you know but but through the mail an objectivist philosopher up in new york and asking him questions <laughs> because you know there was an email or the internet or whatever and david kelly wrote me and he said hey there's another objectivist uh libertarian guy in jackson mississippi like four hours away from you why don't you contact him I, and that's what I did, and so Jack and I became friends. But I had to find a guy, a whole state away, to be, just to meet and have some common interest and to talk and to become buddies with, you know. Interesting. Um, but I hate these, you know, old guys that say, "Oh, in my day," but it's really. I, I heard Tom Woods interview um, some guy the other day on his podcast who's. Like thirty eight, Tom's about forty something, so they're not that young, but they're not that old. But they, at least Tom remembers. He remembers the pre-internet days, and he he had a point that the good thing about that is that if you've seen both sides of it, you you actually sort of appreciate what we have now and how amazing it is. But all these young kids come up and they just take it for granted, right? Which they probably should, but. They don't even understand. Like, do you understand? <laughs> you had to send physical mail. You had to. Uh, we didn't have laser printers, even. You know, we had maybe a dot matrix at best, but right. it was a whole different system. Not, there was nothing instant and on demand. You know, you couldn't watch a YouTube clip of the of, of the late the latest Johnny Carson show. It, if you missed it, it was gone forever. You know, right. I actually bought a microfish reader so that I could get stuff from John Zub in Australia. John Zub, who's that? Um, he he was a pusher of panarchism, and he had lots of radical literature, anarchist, uh, individualist, just a lot of stuff uh, available on uh, you know in microform. <laughs> so he would send you like. Yeah, I bought I bought microfish with with microfish. Yeah, and I and I read Lysander Spooner in microfish. And Depew and all sorts of people. Uh, well, that's that's another thing is that like okay, so you're rare. Like your interest in that is very rare. So there was no market for it basically. That's why it was in this inaccessible format, right? Right. So, but nowadays with the internet, even if something only has a very very narrow niche interest, uh, you can still it could still be easily accessible now. You can even have print on demand books for it. You know, it's it's. Well, it's the long tail, is what they say. You ever buy these books that, like, uh, 
like they're in they're in, they're in the public they're in the public domain now because they're like 150 years old. But it's just someone took this library copy of some old book and they just photocopied it or scanned it and they turned it into a print on demand book and you buy it and it's like no there is no editing there's no searchable text it's just basically but it's a car it's a it's a nice carbon copy basically of an old book not carbon copy you know what i mean like yeah, it's yeah. just a photocopy but for but for like seven dollars so okay this works yeah it's a At least you can get it you know, you can build your own library if you want to easily. Right. It's now, crazy. I tend to buy, you know, with 19th century books, I tend to buy them on the used book market. And they're pretty cheap these days because most people are getting things online. So the, the there's no great rarity value in this stuff. But I have bought probably a dozen or a half dozen of those kind of books you're talking about. Uh, where Where's your, if you want to buy a, an actual physical copy of an old book that was actually physically published in paper, like... 100 years ago do you get it on amazon or what's what's the main uh i usually go to a books a books okay i figured they had gone like i i figured that was a temporary thing i haven't been there and i used to go there too in the old days but um then i figured amazon sort of would have taken over but uh uh, i bought i buy probably three quarters of my books from from a books huh I might check them out because every now and then there's a book I want which I can't find, and it perplexes me because you, nowadays we expect everything to be available, even some obscure thing. And I'm like, how can I not find this? Or you'll find a weird copy on Amazon for like fifteen hundred dollars, and you're like, I don't even know if this is, you know, I'm not going to pay that, but I don't even know if it's real. Like something is something is off here, you know? Um, okay, eight books. Yeah, um... check them out again. You know, my great white whale has been Pareto for years. Uh, I don't have a lot of Pareto. There's not a lot been translated from him. I have his sociological treatise in four volumes, but his manual of political economy, which is sort of, sort of one of the key texts of the 20th century economics, which I kind of like to have just simply to go through at least half of it. Um, hmm. I had several chances back in the 80s and 90s to buy copies for like used copies for 20, 25, 30 bucks, something like that. And I thought, you know, mm. I'm not going to spend 25, 35 bucks mm-hmm. on that book. Well, and now, and now you would love you'd love you'd love the opportunity to do that. Well, you know? I've missed it several times. And now the things are going online, you know, in the used book market for 60 bucks and more. And that's where my that's where my margin of indifference is now. <laughs> Sixty bucks. I just. Well, Timo, w- are you taking uh, donations for your channel? You should maybe ask the readers. Uh, give you sixty bucks to. I mean, the listeners. You need a sixty dollar donation to buy some Pareto. You know, maybe I should. It should be my Pareto fund. It would be Pareto optimal. Yeah, yeah. There you are. Now, was that in, was that in English or was it translated? Well, it was. It was translated. It was a. Uh, he wrote in hmm, French, I believe, French, because he was a Swiss. He was Switzerland. Lausanne School. <laughs> Well, actually, he was Italian, who taught in Switzerland and wrote in French, I believe. He wrote a two-volume attack on socialism that's not been translated. Well, this is the other thing that drives me nuts. There are some works that um, are only available in, I don't know, German or or French or something, and I don't speak those languages. And there's no there's no good translation or translation that I'm aware of, and so it, it's very frustrating. I mean, it must be, I, I guess. It's even worse. I don't know. Do you think it's worse to be English like us and be monolingual? I don't, are you monolingual? Or I'm pretty you... much monolingual, yes. So we're trapped in one language. 
but on the other hand, almost everything is in English or translated in English. Not everything, but almost. But I wonder if, like, let's say you're French or – on the other hand, most of them speak English too. Yes. So, But if imagine if you're not fluent in English and you, you're German or French or Spanish or something like that or Chinese. I, I mean I don't think like the translation process works symmetrically. Like I don't think everything that's great in English is translated into Chinese. Maybe some key works, but you know, not everything. So what else did you I thought you wanted to talk about like maybe our kind of was it the origins of our libertarian experiences or what what, what was what was the main thing you wanted to chat about today? Well, I forgot. Yeah, we uh we we get uh, sidetracked somehow. Uh, but uh, no, mainly I'm interested in, in what your thoughts, we, we have touched on this, the idea of a polarization in the libertarian movement or a multipolarization in the libertarian movement. And you've already mentioned that you're alienated from aspects of the libertarian uh, constituency right now. Well, oh yeah, I, 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 you're asking me about some of my criticisms. Of, uh, and look, I, I tease my own people, but look, our politicians aren't always the best, say, quality politicians in terms of their political talent. But that's that's there's a reason for that, right? It's because if you have that kind of talent, <laughs> you're going to direct it towards the Democrat or Republican Party so that you can you you can use it, you know. So uh, it's just a natural process. I don't blame libertarians for that. Um, yeah, and I, I tease libertarians for being libertarian sometimes too. Uh, it's almost like this criticism some of the boomers have of millennials, like oh they're they're lazy and they smoke pot too much and they couch surf and they're always trying to skip paying the tab for dinner and you know it's it's not really i mean i i've gone to so many conferences i've been i've been to pork fest i went to libertopia even the hippie ones you know i loved it i love these guys um but libertarians are a unique breed um i think sometimes i see them through the lens of the eyes of people that I'm with that are normal, you know, like colleagues and neighbors and family members who are just not into this. And I could, you can see how they see us libertarians. Like when I start telling them about what I experienced at this conference or at this event, their eyes kind of like, oh, you know. And then you, so you start realizing that we're not like the others. And I don't know why or exactly how, and I probably shouldn't be so critical because they're my people. You know, that's why I joined. I joined the Libertarian Party. I think last year after Tom Woods and these guys did it, and I've been fighting that for thirty-five years because I, I'm. I don't think politics is the way to to make change, but I finally thought, you know what? These are my people. These are my peeps. They're fighting for liberty in their own way. Why not just join the party? I mean, after all, I've been voting. When I vote, I usually vote libertarian if there's a reasonable candidate running. So, what does it hurt? I, I mean, I know they're minarchists. They're not that principled. Uh, there's a lot of people that have dumb ideas about political activism's e efficacy. What do you think of the SJW tendencies among the current crowd in the LP, especially Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen? Have you noticed that? Yeah, I probably think what you think about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I roll my eyes at it. 
I think that's what you get when you have people that are ass-kissing too much, right? They're they're trying to be respectable and mainstream, or they're just not that radical, or they're not that theoretical or intellectual or principled. I don't see that much of that kind of thing among the really like theory type libertarians that are really smart and radical, except some of the left libertarians. They will do that too. But I think they're trying to ask kiss to the to the commies and the socialists, like, hey, we're one of you. We can I don't know. Well, it's, many of them are in I, I, teaching in college, right? So that they're around SJWs all the time, right? That may be part of it. And they're I think they're trying to I guess I've always been in your face, like the what did Michael Cloud call it, the macho libertarian flash? Like that's what attracted me to it was the fact that it's different and that it's principled and yeah, it's different and it, it might make you uncomfortable and it should. I mean, you're if you're in favor of the drug war, you're in favor of literally killing people or putting them in cages for doing something that you just don't like. I mean, it's you know. I don't understand why some libertarians want to sugarcoat this crap. But SJWism isn't sugarcoating that so much as saying that racism, being anti-racism, is an integral part of being a libertarian, which I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. No, I think that, yeah, I think that's a different issue. Uh, I think by sugarcoating, I mean some people they will change, they will talk about this stuff as a way to avoid upsetting people with the. The stuff that we believe that they, they don't like, like, you know, you don't want welfare. You don't want you don't want a minimum wage. You don't want income taxes. You don't want the government's paying for the roads. So th they can say, well, yeah, but we also agree with you that racism is. But I think the other the other thing you're talking about is um, is this thickism idea, right? Like, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and 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 probably the best libertarian that still advocates some version of this, but there's. It's like say Roger Long, who's a who's a friend of mine, and he's a left libertarian. So he's radical, like he even likes Ayn Rand novels and this kind of pro capitalist stuff. But he allies himself with these Kevin Carson guys and these guys that they just hate capitalists and and they use these kind of philosopher vague terms like it's almost like the equivocation thing. Like they'll say, well. You're against aggression, but that's a form of oppression. So you're against oppression, right? I guess. Well, it's also oppressive to have a hierarchical institution where the man tells the one, the wife what to do, and the employer bosses his people around. After all, you're against bossing people around, aren't you? So they do this kind of equivocation thing, and I, I think it's total nonsense. Um, I was on a podcast yesterday with the, the Birding Boots guys, and these guys are young, irreverent, funny, smart, and they said, hey, uh, do you think Hans Hermann Hoppe is a racist? And you know, I want to I want to say just of course not. He's a good friend of mine, and of course not. I want to defend him, but to be honest, I don't even I'm not even sure anymore what racism really is. Um, and to the extent it has any meaning, most people are racist by most of the standards. You know, uh, you know, if if you're if you're if you're a black woman, a black dad who doesn't want his daughter marrying a white guy, is that racist? I mean, it is by the standards of the hyper thin, right? But so to me, I just go back to libertarianism. Like I'm against any law 
that violates people's rights, and some of them have a disproportionate effect on black people. And of course we're against that, but we're against it because it's aggression. So – and in fact, most of the people that say they're not racist support laws that hurt black people, like the welfare system right, or like the drug war. You know, it's sort of like the environmentalist who says they're for against climate change, but they're not in favor of nuclear energy. So it's like either you're stupid or you're not sincere. I don't, so I don't know which one it is. You tell me. And so if you're really against racism, you should be against the drug war first and foremost, like something like that, because that would have the the biggest. You know, and against the welfare system, even right, and things right. that have disproportionate effects on black. So, but again, that goes back to a legal theory or like a a, a a rights idea. So, I'm against any un immoral law that has an effect on people that hurts them, and sometimes they're racial in effect. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the reason we have the problems we have now is primarily because we had slavery. I think, and this is all the result of. The stupid practice, the evil practice we had of bringing slaves over from Africa three three hundred years ago. You know, okay, now we're dealing with the effects of that. I didn't want to prevaricate and maunder on this thing, but I was like, well, I, I don't think he's a racist. I mean, he's he's married to a Turkish Muslim, and his social views you might not agree with, but he's just a libertarian, like we all are. Or uh, so. To me, the question is not if someone's a racist. It's do they have the power to implement it by force, right? Right. And of course, I, I never understand why people can't get the basic. It's it's the elementary economic logic of a Henry Hazlitt, like about why the minimum wage hurts people. Well, by the same token, if you really think women are being uh, or blacks are being um, discriminated against and by, by being paid, say, lower wages for the same job. Don't you understand that another another competing employer could simply gobble them up and take advantage of this stupid senseless differential? And everyone blows it up. They go, "Well, not everyone's rational like you think they are. They have this stupid, these stupid." It's like it's not about being rational. It's about the way economics and the and the free market work. You get punished. It's expensive to be racist, basically, if it's irrational. But if it does signal something else, I mean, that that's one of the that's one of the tricky parts of racism today is, is that sometimes it's if not it's racism, right? Else, then then it's not really. It would probably be called racist, but I don't think it's wrong, or irrational. You know, I mean, remember, there's that famous quote from Jesse Jackson back, I guess, when Bill Clinton was running or something. He said, "When I'm walking down the." A sidewalk in a big city late at night. I see a group of black kids coming. I get nervous. Like he was confessing that, but he's basically just admitting the fact that we make snap judgments sometimes based upon imperfect information, and we take statistics into account. Uh, young black males are more of a threat than some old. White lady with a cane. I mean, it's, you know, everyone knows these things. Right. But 
there, there is sort of a prohibition on talking about some of this, honestly. And I don't find SJWism. I know. I know. That's, that's actually one of my complaints about the social justice mindset is that it's just another. It reminds me so much of conservatism as I, as I grew up, of the people who thought that you, you know, you couldn't say certain things. I mean, you, you weren't supposed to swear. You weren't supposed to. Right. You weren't. And living in sin was just the worst thing in the world. I mean, there's all these things that, that prohibitions that they had culturally. And they came off as as authoritarians, in my opinion. Well, and I think the latest the latest version of that is this trans transsexual thing. Um, um, I've had people attack me on Facebook just for saying some innocuous thing. If you use the word tranny or what, I mean, listen, I I personally I'm not an expert on this crap. I don't really care. I'm a live and let live guy. I'm tolerant. I'm polite to people, but I don't quite get this. Stalinist insistence on this orthodox party line about this distinction between gender and sex. Okay, and I don't. So I don't. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't think you can change your gender. I don't think it's fluid. I don't believe it. I could be wrong. I don't give a fuck. I really don't care. I mean, <laughs> people can do what the fuck they want, you know. But if you, you know, but. I think homosexuality, for example, sexual preference is, is one thing. I think some people are actually gay, and they can't – they don't choose their preference, um, and hey, it's their life to live. Uh, but I don't think you can choose your – you can't choose your identity. Like you can't just – like it was like that – who was the woman, Rachel Dolezal, who pretended to be black? She said, well, I identify as black. Or and they have all these words like I present as black or I present as I mean, hell, look at freaking Kamala Harris. Look at look at Obama. Obama's half white and half black, and yet people call him black. Where where does that get established? And then Kamala Harris is what, half Indian and yes. half J- Jamaican or something like that? Right, and Jamaican and is people, partly European, right? Mainly European in her case. Right. So, and she's I, as far as I can tell, she's married to a white guy, and yet now people are calling her African American. I'm like, how exactly is she African American? Well, that's just, that's <laughs> so, of course just nonsense. I mean, that's uh, but they're doing it because it's cool to be black. Of course, she is darker skinned. So, you know, I don't really, once again, I'm in your camp. I don't really care how you parse that out, though I find it often funny. I, I believe I have the right to laugh at your, yeah. how you present yourself. Yeah. And you have the right to yeah. laugh at how I present myself. But most of the time, we're yeah. not going to laugh, right? That's that, that's just how it is. We, we don't have the right to hit each other over the head. And that's kind of where we're at. They'll play this game where they'll say, well, you don't have to agree with me, but you can at least respect someone's choice to be called what they want to be called no like yeah that's fine and in in person i will do that it's a it's just a just a question of politeness and manners and you know discourse between people but that's not what you that's not what you said You, you you said that gender is a social construct and that uh uh and you can choose your gender and but and then that has consequences because then they then they want to put it into law, like the bathroom thing. And I agree that's not a big deal, probably, but it, it's it, it's going to have an it does have an effect in like in sports and things like this. And it over time, it's going to have more of an effect. 
it's probably always going to be a marginal minor thing. But I don't know. Uh, but just because you don't agree that people can change the, that your gender de- is depends on what you just announce to the world, right? And now there's like what seventy two or something in some jurisdictions. Yeah, like there's there, there's 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 Wiccan or. I, 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 it's the whole, it seems like the whole thing seems like a joke a science fiction or fantasy writer would have made up in a novel about an alternate universe. Like it seems like preposterous. Like, are you guys serious? Like, how do you know that your number gender number seventeen instead of number twenty nine? Or how how do you know? And how what keeps it from changing from day to day? It's what? like if someone said, "My name is." Uh, symbol on Tuesdays and Ralph on Thursdays, and they expect you to keep up with this ridiculous barrage of rules, and which they might change every two days because you have to. Otherwise, you're being not respectful of their ability to present themselves to the world. Uh, so I just find it ridiculous. Um, yeah. It was like when Prince changed his name to the stupid symbol that was unpronounceable, and it was a new symbol. It wasn't even like Omega or something. It was just so people started calling him remember symbol man or uh the artist who was formerly prince yeah the, some tap tap or yeah some some acronym what else are you supposed to do i mean <laughs> yeah um, no, so yeah i i i consider gender theory to be preposterous uh because i think it's inherently confused these people don't know what they're talking about they present a definition <laughs> Of gender, well, you've seen you've seen my writings on the subject. Uh, they present a yeah. definition of yeah. gender, and then they don't follow it, and they, but they do have an interesting idea in the background. What they're what they fear once again is oppression, is you know bad feelings from other people, and our roles and how people look at us is socially constructed. That is, other people often do define us, and these are people who want to define themselves, but because they're not individualists and they have basically no spine. They have to define themselves by some new category, a gender. That's what gender and category are pretty much the same kind of idea. And so they come up with these new gender, these new concepts, the categorizations for themselves, and that they try to define themselves. I like people defining themselves. I have no problem with it. But when they pretend that they're making a new universal law of a Kantian nature or a scientific nature, they're, they're idiots. Yeah, I, I, that that's kind of the way I view it. It's it's almost like these people that, and this has been around for decades in my experience. People that say, like, you'll say, "Well, are you are you are you a socialist? Are you a libertarian? Are you a Republican?" And they'll say, "Oh, I don't like labels. I just like to." It's like, well, if you say you don't like labels, what you're saying is you don't like concepts. I mean. L- Labels are just words that are the, you know, they, they, they connect to conceptual identification of reality. We, we're conceptual beings. So, what do you mean you don't like labels? So, I kind of joke that, oh, so you're an anti labeler. And they, they, they know, of course, that frustrates them. Like, well, I, no, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I guess I'm an anti labeler. Um, yeah, this whole gender thing, uh, it doesn't drive me that nuts, to be honest, because I, it's not the biggest problem we have now, but uh, it doesn't cost us that much yet that I can see. Although there is, I guess a more to me a more interesting question is I've been paying it. 
Oh, the another interesting phenomena is this uh, the battles it's causing within the left. Like you have these feminists, like the TERFs, right? Tran the trans exclusionary radical feminists, like yeah, I uh, like and, them. Uh, I like them too, and uh, and I guess uh, like my friend Nina Kelly's one or accused of being one, and uh, who's the uh, Harry Potter author? J.K. Rowling is is been getting all this flack. Uh, because they don't want their feminist agenda hijacked by Dudes. men with penises <laughs> who claim that they're women. I mean, I I kind of sympathize with the feminists, but <laughs> I, I and then they're and, and, and of course the, the hyper left is calling them. Uh, you're not you're not you're not uh, fighting with our sister or fellow sisters. Like, well, they're not your sisters, really. <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, you honestly have people saying like, I think I heard some political campaign. It was a Democrat thing, I believe, and it was like uh, some. It was like some warning about cervical cancer, but instead of saying women should be checked for this, they said persons who have a cervix should be checked for this. Like they, they didn't even want to say women because, of course, some men might have a cervix now. You know. Just like abortion rights are not only for women anymore, because some men might need to get an abortion because they have a uterus. Right. So it's, it's absurd. Uh, part of the deal, though, is I have is with the trans movement. You know, there's a trans acceptance movement that's gone into a trans demand movement. That is, we we must accept. Right. But the thing is, is that though I like trans people, all the trans people I've met, this is rather like Muslims. I, I like all the Muslims I've ever met. But that doesn't mean yeah. I like Islam, and it doesn't mean that I like right. trans acceptance. And I'm actually against trans acceptance because, to me, trans is getting close to fraud. And I think that this is a problem for people: is that you you may, you may be able to display however you want, but if you if you're saying you're something you're not, in a contractual situation, that's fraud. And I don't like it just as a cultural thing. I think it's a bad thing. Yeah, I, I think that's roughly my that's roughly my view. Uh, I, I I don't. I don't disbelieve that some people have gender dysphoria or whatever you call it, and they get confused, and they need to be dealt with a certain way and handled. I, I don't – like if you have a, a kid who is a boy and he wants to act like a girl and dress like a girl, there's got to be a humane and a, and a rational way of dealing with that, right? And I don't know what it is, but it's not to lie about reality and to pretend like – or then the, certainly not to give hormone replacement theory uh, uh, therapy at at age twelve, or whatever they were, or whatever they're doing, uh, messing guess, with I, their I guess own. I'm, I guess as a as a as a strong libertarian, I'm a little bit torn on that one, um, because I don't really exactly believe. I mean, as a practical father and a person in the world, yeah, I agree with you. Um, but you know, if you believe in Rothbard's idea that a four-year-old has the right to emancipate himself by saying no and running away. I, I guess that it's a question of jurisdiction. Like who, who has the right to decide? I mean, I think it's a horrible mistake for a 12 year old or six year old to do this physical transition. It's probably a mistake for most adults to do it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, these trans advocates, they admit that this, like the suicide rate, the depression rate for trans people is, is way higher, and you can't blame it all on the fact that they're just not accepted and they're shunned in society, right? It can't all be that. Right. 
in fact, I don't think it's that at all. I think it's that their their wires are twisted. And I mean, I think the same thing about homosexuality. To be honest, I think it's a it's some kind of it's, it's some kind of crossing of the wires in the brain, and that's why that also is correlated with more depression and more psychological problems. Doesn't mean that they should be treated with less respect or not. Uh, uh, treated as fellow humans or can't live good lives but why can't we have opinions about these things i mean until recently it was they were considered mental disorders right or they probably still are or at least uh, it, it like in the uh, what, what is that that manual in the uh the u.s medical or psychological the, the manual of all the disorders dsm i forget what it's called. yeah i think it's that i mean schizophrenia well i mean you could say, oh, someone's a schizophrenic. They they just present as having several personalities. I, I you could you could you could normalize anything you want. Right. I guess the real question is if you're a decent normal parent, would you want your kid to have this? Like, would that be your dream ideal? You know, like there are retarded kids. There are kids that are born missing an arm or have with a deformity. And we treat them with compassion, and we help them, and we try to accept them into society. But it doesn't mean you want your kid to be born with with that, right? I mean, if two if if two gay guys have a kid, do you think they want the kid to be gay? I think probably they don't. Well, some do, some don't. I don't know about that because we have a lot of uh, women out there right now, uh, mothers, who want their child to be trans. I mean, we have these examples in, uh, you know, in society now of women who uh, are usually mothers. They're not usually men, but sometimes it's both parents who are engaging in this subterfuge of calling their son a daughter or their daughter a son. It's it's a very odd thing, and they're doing things about it too. And I find that. Did you ever see? Did you ever see that that bit from Sasha Baron Cohen when he was uh, he he was under one of his one of his alternate personalities and he went on like like uh the jerry springer type show might have been the jerry springer show anyway he had his baby with him and he had a t-shirt on and it was it called he it was a it was gaby he said yeah this is my baby he's gay it's i call him he's gaby and the audience was just regular like regular like suburban like housewives and black women they were like horrified why are you calling that baby gay? <laughs> I have not seen that. Uh, I have a hard time with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. I prefer his cousin Simon Baron Cohen. I do too. I do too. <laughs> sometimes he has something that's memorable, you know. Yeah, uh, I've never been able to watch his his movie other than than the than the uh, than Hugo, which is not when he's playing as when he's actually an actual actor. Yeah, the movies I find are pretty pretty bad, but. Uh, some of his bits on his show when he used to have that show. Uh, I didn't know he had a show. Yeah, I think that's how it started. The, it was called the Ali the Ali G show, and he played this. Oh, okay. The problem I have with him is half of his humor is just basically deceiving people. Right? He pretends to be someone he's not. He gets them to do and say stupid things, but it's because he's lying to them, and it's not really that revealing usually. I think actually Trump, Trump actually immediately recognized it was it was a fraud and just walked out of the one when he got up that time. 
And uh, Trump I understand. Takes credit for that I understand. Ron Paul got in a weird situation with uh, with uh, Cohen. Yeah, I think I think that's right. In Borat, but I've not seen it. I couldn't watch it. I just don't like that kind of thing. Probably for the same reason I'm not trans acceptant is that it seems like fraud. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, in fact, with Gaby, we have gay, actually an example. Fraudulent. What? I'm just saying, if if you're gay, you're not defrauding anyone. You actually right. not pretending to be something you're not. Right. But trans, you are now. I'm not saying people can't play whatever they want to. It's just that there's a, there are problems here that we don't see in 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 among gays, and that these problems well, what should do, be what acknowledged. Do you think about the how would you, in your own person, in your own opinion, uh, uh, compare uh, the transvestite thing versus the transsexual thing? Like like say the RuPaul, like this drag show kind of stuff he has, and apparently it's popular. I don't I don't get that at all personally. I don't understand it. I don't know why people find that amusing or funny or interesting at all. But they're not really pretending to be women. They're just dressing the way they want to dress. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I used to know, you know, when I was young, I knew a lot of these people. And okay. uh, I just, I've, I've, I haven't met, I haven't interacted with them in many years, decades really. And uh, I don't really have any opinions on it. I, I, I mean, really, I don't have any opinions on, on, on uh, I don't see why they're doing it, but I don't see why a lot of people, I don't see why people like rap or why they like, most country western music i just don't get it right uh right so there's a lot of things i don't need to get everything that's that's one of the great things about uh, yeah yeah a life in a diverse society is you don't need to get everything and you don't need to like everything in a in a monoculture <laughs> then you're, then there's a problem if what say that again in a monoculture that becomes more problematic and that's kind of where many people are coming from is that they expect to be living in a monoculture they have a very strong culture with a what they call it, a positive ethnocentrism and and then mm-hmm. negative ethnocentrism where they don't like something that's not theirs. Yeah, I don't really have that. That's or when they my... when they try to when they try to back up things with the force of law, that's when it starts to be oh, uh, sure, sure. getting you a problem. Oh, um, sure. However, uh, certainly the attitudes of positive and negative ethnocentrism have a huge effect on uh, human society throughout history. I mean, this is this is pretty obvious, and uh, and these play out in many different ways. Uh, one of them being that racism is a substitute for ethnocentrism. Uh, this whole talk about race. There's a number of people in the in the alt-right who are trying to get you and me to be very interested in being white. Right. And I don't really right. care about being white. For one thing, if I have right. any if I have any group identity that's not based on what I like, then it's probably my Finnish ancestry. Right? Right. And you come from Louisiana. I hear you talk about Louisiana things a lot. That means yeah. more to you than than being white does, I assume. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I wonder if that's sometimes because I'm an individualist, which is why I'm a libertarian or vice versa. Yeah, no, I, I do think that this white thing um, is is an understandable backlash against the ridiculous double standards of reverse racism and all the stuff we've had for a couple decades now, oh, right? Sure, sure. So what what do you expect when you start balkanizing people and treating people into by by their tribal in by their gender, by their sex, sorry, not by their gender. Well I don't even know which one it is anymore. But uh, you know Or their race. 
mean, when you have case. explicit affirmative action and quotas and uh, oppression against white males, legal legalized, then you're going to have to expect the backlash, and people are going to get fed up with it, and that's what you're going to have. That's what's happening. Yes. Uh, I don't like all these alt right, alt white, alt white people, whatever. It 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 nauseates me. I've never liked that, but I understand it. And they're no, I in in a way, they're no worse than the than the the race hustlers, you know, on the other side. In a sense, they are race hustlers. They're just a different side. Yeah, but I I mean, from what I've heard, a lot of these alt alt people, uh, they're not all they're not all white nationalists in the in the sort of old. Uh, like KKK sense, they like I don't. Some of them, yeah, they want they want the world to be all white and Aryan like Hitler or something, you know. But but some of them just want to be left alone. Like let's have our white tribe. You have your black tribe, and we think we're better. If you think you're better, that's okay with us. You let's see who does better. I mean, it's it's almost a. A live and let live tribalist attitude. Again, I don't like it. It doesn't appeal to me. It, it, I think it's something weird. But I understand why it, it, it came about. It also seems it tends. It, it seems to me that it tends to, um, it tends to be the attitude expressed by people that are generally lowly educated. You know, like people that are frustrated. Right. Right. Uh, maybe maybe I'm mischaracterizing it, but I would say country people or uneducated people, blue collar types. You know, it, it seems to it tends to be among the ignorant types. But again, what else would you expect? Uh, a stigmatized, unpopular movement's going to get appeal among people that have little to lose, which is what we call a loser. And that might be wrong. There are some alt-right people that are kind of educated. Uh, and it, well, Jared Taylor is a is a very cultivated man. Jared Taylor, uh, so. Richard Spencer, they're they're pretty erudite and. Um, and I don't really have any problem with people wanting to live among their kind. I'm all for it. I, I think people should. I, I actually don't have a problem even with segregation if it's not legal. I mean, people if people right, want to live among a community like they have, I, I, that's no problem with me. I don't I don't even see well, why anyone people, should care. And, and that's what people do. I mean, in real, this is, I don't, I've never seen it not happen. I, we, we still have segregation to this day. Hispanic neighborhood, Chinese neighborhood, black neighborhood, white neighborhood. But like, in, say, in my white neighborhood, there's a few blacks and no one, no one even bats an eye because they don't have a problem with it. But you sort of know what it is. I mean, America, people think of it as a Christian country. Turkey's, Turkey's a Muslim country. Okay. You can have people that are minorities within those countries, and they usually get along fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, though, once again, I mean, Muslim countries right now are going through a resurgence of hyper-ethnocentrism with negative interests. Even well, Turkey's... I was going to ask you, what do you think about the phenomena of Muslim women in the West wanting the so-called freedom to to wear their hijabs and their niqabs and all these kind of beekeeper outfits and everything? I mean, there is something a little bit disconcerting about. Of course, you have the right to do what you want, but do you really think they want to be basically treated like 
second-class citizens in that sense, even in the West? Well, some of the uh, leaders kind of do, but even Ilhan Omar doesn't wear, you know, the full regalia or whatever you, I don't right. the burqa, the hijab, she's doing whatever she's doing, the scarfs and the, that kind of stuff. Uh, because she's in public and she can't, I mean, you can't be in Congress with a burqa. I mean, that's just not going to work. Before the current um, ideological divide really became strong, like 10 years ago, my attitude was, well, if you want to wear, you know, full garb, that's fine in America. That's fine. I have no problem with it. But then I should be able to wear a mask in public. And now with the COVID situation, masks are almost obligatory. We're going to get to the point where we'll be able to scuttle the thing that I dislike right now most about the surveillance state is their ability to track everybody by their faces. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually looking at the bright side of, uh, of the mask wearing. Uh, yeah. It's giving us, it's, it's equalizing everything, and it's going to really put a monkey wrench into the NSA's plans. Uh, and yeah, I can see that. Although I, I think I heard that there are some states or jurisdictions where one of the requirements to have a concealed carry weapon is you can't wear a mask, right? Something like that. Oh, okay. So the right to bear arms is in a way conditioned upon you not wearing a mask. But then if the government requires you to wear a mask, then that means you can't carry a gun. Now, what they really mean is they can't conceal carry a gun, right? Well, I don't. I, I think it was. I think the the example I heard was a concealed carry. But I, I'm I'm just saying that the right the government's grudging allowing of your right to bear a weapon could be conditioned upon this mask thing, and then they just make you wear a mask. So that means that I guess they're basically saying you're 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 violating a law if you carry a licensed weapon. While abiding by the mask law, <laughs> you know? that's a very, that's an interesting twist, twist I've not thought of before. So that could be a constitutional challenge, actually, to the mask law. You For could say, sure. well, the Second Amendment fundamental right is more fundamental than this, and blah blah blah. But who knows? The masks, I'm not, I'm not on board with the masks anymore, as we talked about before we started re hitting the record button. One thing that you and I have talked about a number of times in the past uh, online, but never in person, has been the thick versus thin uh, libertarian issue, mm -hmm. which we broached briefly earlier. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. what is your what are your thoughts on that little controversy today? I mean, the idea is that the thick position is that to have a free society, you have to have a whole bunch of other um, institutional norms and mores uh, in society, kind of socially enforced and common, and that this is an important part of libertarianism. I sort of accept the first part, but don't accept the second part. That's kind of where I am. And it's so, in other words, I don't think that's what, so I don't think thickism, the thing that, advocates of thickism advocate is not the common sense observation that to have a free society we need more than just people that believe in liberty okay everyone knows this i mean yeah i think they're saying more than that and it's the more than that part that i disagree with i've always disagreed with it and what is I, that more than i, I don't always, even understand the what's more than that what is the well, and so that's part of, that's part of the problem I'll, I'll i'll tell you what i think it means but I dis I disagree with thickism almost for the same reasons I disagree with the the left right spectrum that I reject the spectrum anyway. Like I don't, as a libertarian, I don't think. Well, I used to not think this. I mean, I've changed my view on this, but I, I think you can distinguish left versus right in some in some ways. 
the more I've come to think about it, I, I think lefties are more egalitarians and conservatives are are more realistic about uh, about how nature and human society works. But in practice, they can both become different types of socialists, right? They can have different uh, different types of governmental or institutionalized oppression against people. So from the libertarian point of view, strictly speaking, it's just not that interesting of a distinction, left versus right. I don't think it's an ideological distinction. I think it's a cultural and um, operational distinction. It's a, it's orthogonal to what we are concerned about yeah. generally as force and freedom and, and that kind of thing, whereas yes. that's something different, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, so I think for the thick thing, I almost resent like them trying to make me choose. Like, are you are you thick or thin? It's like I feel like they're giving us a false dichotomy or a false choice, right? Um, um, for example, just like you said earlier, uh, to have a free society, we need various things to be in place, or, or to have a good society, right? To have well, all societies do have more than just their laws, right? Yeah. So, 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 for, so, for example, I don't think you can have a, a good society or a liber- or a free society if people can't communicate with each other. <laughs> like, so you have to have language, and I don't think you can have reason. You can't have it if people don't have reason, and you can't have reason without logic, and you can't have logic without consistency and valuing the truth, and some kind of commitment to honesty and decency. So, there's all kinds of things, uh, and I think you you can't have a good society uh if people don't understand history right and if they don't have technology and production engineering mathematics uh you know economics so all these things are important and they're all related and to be a good economist you have to understand logic and you probably need to know something about history and to be a good historian you probably need to know something about philosophy right and language so the all these things are distinct conceptually and they're all important and they're all related the fact that the the thickers want to take credit for this kind of insight i find insulting this is something everyone knows so all the things they want to take credit for they don't deserve credit for they're just common sense insights and then they try to put them together into this therefore so they use these vague words like uh, your commitments. Like, as a libertarian, we're against aggression. But again, like like I mentioned earlier, that's because you're against people being bought, pushed around or bossed around. So they'll use this vague equivocal term and try to equate it and get you to admit to that. And then they'll say, and therefore, you're against other cases of people being bossed around. And your commitment to liberty entails a commitment to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what are you trying to say? I mean it's like they want to have it both ways. They, 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 they tend to admit, at least the strict ones, they will admit that, okay, your legal rights should depend only on the non-aggression principle. But that's not the only commitment that we have or something like that. So I think it's all nonsense to be honest. Anything they have to add, it's sort of like what… Someone said of Hayek one time – you you might be more of a Hayek fan than I am, but they said something like everything he said that was true and good was already in Mises, and everything that wasn't already in Mises that he said was just not 
not true and good or right. You know, basically, he he contributed nothing. Now, I don't think that's actually true. I think the capital theory he might have, but on the other stuff, I that's kind of my view about Hayek. Like, uh, you know, to the extent he was like Mises, he was just repeating that in a different way, and that's fine. And to the extent he wasn't, he was wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a dismissive way of you know, but it's just an example. And I sort of think the same thing about thickism. So I don't think it adds anything to anything. I mean, what it, what are they saying that if if you're a libertarian, you're supposed to be? Uh, I I think ultimately they're saying you, you should be uh, opposed to capitalism, right? Because it's you, you should be in favor of opposed to exploitation, basically, right? And hierarchies. So they oppose the natural order. They oppose bosses being natural elites. They oppose uh, bossing people around. They they oppose alienation of people's labor. Uh, they they tend to be Marxian sometimes in thinking of uh, you know that the the capitalist class is exploiting the surplus value of the workers' labor, or at least that's implied by their vision of their utopian future world where there's no. There's no more firms or capitalists or employment or hierarchies or that kind of, like they so they think that this is all a um, uh, uh, a relic of the state corporatism, right? Support of corporatism. Um, and again, most of these guys are against corporations, which again is not is not a clear. The corporation is just one form of business organization. It's not really what they're against. They're against what they call big business. I mean, you can have a two-person corporation or a one-person corporation. So what they're really against is what they call big business, which means they're against the modern way industry and Western free markets have been organized for the last couple hundred years. And I guess they have a view that it's heavily distorted and caused by government interference, whereas we more capitalist types think that no, it's a distorted market, but it, capitalism is natural and good, and we don't have free cap complete capitalism because the government is holding it back. So I guess they think the government props up capitalism, whereas we think it holds it back. And we're talking here about people like uh, Kevin Carson, who is I mean he, he's he's. He's on that edge. He he seems to be embracing elements almost of Marxism, certainly Proudhonian economics, right? He's in that crowd. I think so. Um, I mean, he 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 has these so-called jokes about the guys of the C-suites uh, being guillotined, and he seems to really despise these guys. And um, I I have more of a Randian view of the sort of pristine heroic nature of entrepreneurship and capital accumulation and businesses and i think roger long actually kind of does too which is why he admires Rand so much so he won't go quite along with that um and then i think there's a bit of confusion on the labor stuff so like carson is actually good on intellectual property uh and so is roderick um which means that they're not taken in by this labor theory of value mistake which i think underlies a lot of the marxian uh, exploitation ideas, and yet 
some of the left guys still believe in this exploitation idea, right? So I don't I honestly I, I don't I don't know I can't figure it out. I can't figure out why intelligent people who, who believe in liberty want to have anything to do with these the I, I think I'll always hate hate communism and, and, and the left. Uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for I mean let me ask you this. I what do you think about Trump versus Biden? I mean, do you have yourself as a radical libertarian any preference as to who you'd prefer to win? Well, I think Biden would do more harm from my cause if he right. got his way. Certainly Kamala Harris. Actually, it's not between Biden and Trump because I don't think that's a live issue. I think it's between Kamala Harris and Trump because Biden is going to be. I don't I don't think Kamala Harris personally is some ideological Bernie Sanders any more than Biden is. I think they're both. But she's also what, what I see here is she's very, very almost evil she's a, she's an opportunist who will say anything and do anything to get ahead mm. and that's pretty much demonstrated yeah. and and trump will do a lot of things to get ahead in business but he seems to have some some sense of limits on what what we should do in government so i mean mainly i'm against any group of people who supports the riots and uh yeah 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 and because that i consider as a typical left move because I don't think left well, left and right are separated on policy. I think they're separated on how they deal with hierarchies and the in-groups and out-groups. And rioting well, is an yeah. aspect of anarcho-tyranny, which is a left move. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. Uh, my my fear about the, the election is not actually Kamala or Biden themselves. Uh, it's just the fact that... Uh, the Senate probably will go that way too, and then once they have the Congress and the, they're going to be beholden to these interests, and they're going to do the Green New Deal. They're going to go insane on taxes. Spending's going to go crazy. Um, the deficits are going to get out of control, and all these SJW things are going to happen. It's just at free college, all this crap. Like for some reason, you don't, you can't imagine Obama or Bill Clinton doing that but it seems like in today's era the left is ready to just seize on their chance to to just go crazy um and wh whoever's the, the democrat president is just going to go along with it it might be true and i do fear that but i i'll i also think it's possible because kamala harris was selected by the dnc and the elites they want her very much and that's because they know they can deal with her. And what she what they, mm. she can do is that she can betray the leftists. Uh, I believe that's part of the deal is that they have another agenda, their corporatist agenda. I need to interrupt this uh, podcast for a moment to share a word from our sponsor. And today's sponsor is UFOs. <laughs> okay, what am I talking about here? Well, it turns out in the middle of this conversation, this long conversation with Stefan, uh, the subject got into UFOs. This is an interest of mine of a fairly recent nature, but I've done a lot of research on it, best as I can do, and uh, a lot of thinking. And so I uh, applied it, and I tried to convince Stefan that the subject wasn't silly, and that it was actually important, 
And it is not quite what we always thought it was. Because Steph and I come from the same background, the skeptical background. That's where we're both coming from. But uh, things are changing, and we're learning more about UFOs. And I thought I should uh, mention it. But it's not really appropriate for this podcast, so I cut it out of the conversation, and I placed it onto locofogo.locals.com. That's the fan site for Locofogo Netcast. So if you want to hear me talk and try to explain to Stefan Kinsella what the nature of UFOs in our time, go to locofogo.locals.com. And let's call it our sponsor. And if I ever get a payment system in there, you can even give me money for this great service. Heh. <laughs> And you were talking about capitalism and anti-capitalism as, as latent between the left libertarians and the right libertarianism. Yeah. I always thought this was heavily related to you have to be anti-racist to be a libertarian. You can't be just a libertarian. You have to be anti-racist as well. That you, it's not, you have to have this other thing, this basic anti-racist attitude. Otherwise, you won't have a free society. And I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying it's different. Well, I think I'm, even Ayn Rand hinted at this uh, or, or said something similar, right? When she argued that um, she tried to find the common roots of what you would call collectivism or socialism, and it was like tribalism, right? And, irra and irrationalism or something like that. Um, because if you're a fully rational man, you would be individualist and you wouldn't be tribalist at all. And so you wouldn't be racist and you wouldn't be a collectivist. So she tried to identify some common things there, and I, I used to like that and um, uh, sympathize with that, and I still do I think to some degree at least in my attitude. Um, <laughs> look, I, I mean I just – I like humans. I like, I like humanity. I'm glad I'm part of society. I'm glad that we're advanced as we are. We're not living in the you know on the plains anymore and living in caves or in the trees, and I like human culture and human society, and so I I tend to like and value other people. Yeah, we have we have proclivities towards our own types and our own culture and our own ethnicities or whatever. Um, but I. And I don't, I don't think this is incompatible with libertarianism. I don't know if it's necessarily part of it to be an open-minded, cosmopolitan person who likes human human humanity and to value other humans in general, um, despite their differences, or maybe maybe because of their differences. Um, so that's my attitude. I don't think I've ever been one of these. Uh, Tribalist types. But again, I would never have said that anti-racism is part of libertarianism. I don't think it is. Yeah. I guess you get down to a definitional thing. What is – what's the definition of libertarian? What does it mean? What does it mean to be a libertarian? I don't think it's possible to be a libertarian if you don't speak a language, for example. But that doesn't mean that speaking a language is part of libertarianism. Those are different phenomena, right? right? So um, – I don't I think it's hard to imagine someone being a libertarian if they're a misanthrope if they just hate humanity. But logically you could be. 
okay, so what? And, and so I think the so part of the problem again is like the, the the dichotomy I noted before is the division between people who are interested in liberty in a contemplative way, more of an intellectual way, uh, and people that are activists. So the activists they want to achieve something, and they're 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 impatient and they're they're urgent and determined to do that. Most of them think you do that by voting or by haranguing your relatives and everyone you meet and passing out pamphlets or whatever. Um, and so those people are going to tend to um, – they're, they're going to tend to include in libertarianism for what, what they see as libertarianism the activist aspects of it, right? which means persuasion, which means persuading other people. Right, yeah. so they're going to tend to start equating um, things that they think would be a successful strategy or approach as part of libertarianism, because they don't distinguish the two. For them, libertarianism is the 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 the, the attempt to achieve liberty and the the and the activism to achieve it. Um, and I think it's just not that's. Not, Again, that's not what libertarianism is. So then that's the question is what is it? What's the word mean? What does the concept refer to? Why do we use it? What is it describing? And I think it simply describes a, a set of beliefs about justice and law that is distinct from other sets of beliefs about justice and law. That's what I think it is. Uh, we we believe certain laws should be in place, should be in force. Some certain laws are just, certain laws are unjust. That's basically what we believe in. And by law, I mean the more uh, official institutional enforcement mechanism in society that re that that refers to interpersonal relationships, how people should deal with each other, but not just merely interpersonal relationships, because that that can also include manners and morals and things like that, which is not part of political philosophy. So – and some people have radically different views on this, you know, fascist, uh, pop populist, democrats, uh, socialist, democratic socialist, communist, totalitarians, theocrats, and libertarians. And so we we, we use different words to describe these different sets of beliefs. So I think that's what the word is, and then you can argue among ourselves about the, the particular details of it and how far to go and how extreme to go or whatever. But to then say it includes an opposition to oppression in general or to dishonesty or lying or whatever they want to broaden it to include, it's just it's – just, it's like a dishonest debating trick, I think. Yeah, I'm they have your... their own personal preferences outside of libertarianism proper, and they want to persuade you of that, and that's perfectly fine. You know, I might want to persuade you to listen to, to classical music instead of country, but I don't pretend like I'm doing that as a libertarian to a fellow libertarian. Like, listen, we're both libertarians, so if you're a libertarian, you should like classical better than country because that would just be a stupid argument and plus a dishonest one. But the closer one, the ones that they bring in values that are closer, like you know, most 
libertarians I know have some knowledge of economics, and we, we integrate economics with it. And we're humanitarians in some kind of sense because we value other people. Those are all true. But if you just kind of blend them all together and mix them into a big mushy thing and try to use that to get people to adopt your view of these non-libertarian or a-libertarian ideas, I, it just seems to me dishonest. Just make an argument. Make an argument as a human being appealing to some common shared values or whatever, but don't pretend that it's libertarianism. It's not. Geometry is not algebra. You know, physics is not chemistry. They're related, but they're not the same thing. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's basically my take on thick and thin. I, I think thickism is totally useless, to be honest, and I, I dislike it, as I think I've made clear. I'm pretty much on your side on this one, which is uh, not really all that surprising. But I do have a sort of historical question because you mm -hmm. have many friends uh, within the Mises Circle groups, and they were heavily involved in paleo-libertarianism in the early 90s. And uh, that, to me, seems like a thickest movement. You're kind of right. Uh, there is an aspect of thickism to that, too. I suppose I don't abhor it as much because it's not as lefty. So I guess really... <laughs> um, <clears throat> but they didn't call it thickism. They didn't say that libertarianism means this. They did more than one thing at once. They were they were you know they were walking and chewing gum at the same time. I'm not opposed to that. We all do that. Yes. Uh, uh, and so I, I don't think they made quite the mistake of conflating libertarianism with the cultural values. They made their argument that to have a successful libertarian society. You need certain institutions in place and certain characteristics of the people, etc. Right. They may be right, but that's not pretending that libertarianism includes this. Um, now, when they call it paleo-libertarianism, to me that's just an adjective that describes the different type of libertarianism. Like They're the ones who preferred cultural conservative values. Um, so I guess it doesn't bother as much. Although I will, I will say that it seems to me that we've had, in a way, three waves of paleo-libertarianism. Like, so we had, we first had fusionism, right, right. the Frank right. Meyer stuff, and then we had the paleo-libertarianism of the Mises people and the and the uh, what was the Chronicles magazine? Um, yeah, the paleo-conservatives. Uh, yeah, the, the alliance with Thomas there's a, Fleming. Yeah, there's a, uh, the, the something. Uh, uh, I forgot the name of the group. I went to – that's actually my first conference I ever went to was the, uh, in 1994. I went to uh, – well, I went to an objectivist conference in 88 in Dallas. But uh, other than that, my first real conference, I went to the uh, – the, uh, in 1994 in the November, I met Rothbard in Crystal City, Virginia in SDC. It was the paleocons and the paleo-libertarians. But I went there. I was living in Philly. I took the train down, and I, want, I wanted to meet Hoppe, and I met Block. And Rockwell and Roth and Rothbard. I had a conversation with Rothbard, and then he died two months later. So I got to meet him, but I was very uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable by the paleocons, the Sam Francis kind of guys, and uh, Tom Fleming. The, uh, there was something, you know. I was from Louisiana, but I, I, I never like all these guys that have the, the foghorn leghorn kind of accent, and they have the pipe and the cigars and the stars and bars and 
all this kind of neo, almost neo Confederate stuff. I'm not saying it was like that, but it was something about it that I was like, eh, I didn't come here for these people, you know. And of course, they broke apart right after that. But anyway, I think that was the second phase: fusionism and then paleo conservatism, paleo the paleo movement, the kind of merger, the the failed. And then I think we we've had like even the Mises Institute and Hoppe and these guys. You know, like the Property and Freedom Society, which I go to, they sort of trying to do that a little bit again. And then you have the alt right, which is not really, it's more like an offshoot of that, I think. So I find the whole thing fascinating that people don't connect these dots. It seems to me that there's, there's the, like, again, when people talk about the paleo movement, why don't they talk about fusionism? Like, have they not even heard of the Frank Meyer thing? And, and the, the the earlier attempt to do that, and it could help explain, to some degree, Rothbard's apparent uh, seeming gyrations between the left and the right. You know, I think he was he was making his way through these different attempts at strategy. You know, anyway, I don't consider myself a paleo or a conservative, even. All uh, you know, um, I don't know. I don't think you do yourself either although i'm not sure oh i've never been a paleo you're not Uh, i mean you and i both have sort of somewhat conservative values i mean certainly i have a lot of attachment to the western tradition of uh, high civilization yeah and i mean i I, and i'm i'm kind of a fanatic about this subject though i live kind of a boho life in a sense yeah i also have a very conservative life in a sense but that's not really relevant to my political philosophy other than it informs how i think about things well, but you could say that the West is also liberalism, right? And yes. in a broad sense, which I don't know if that's conservative or not. But um, and then you could also say, like, look, let's say we have a priest, a Western priest in in America. He's he's a minority type of guy. He's ascetic. He's not making a lot of money. He doesn't have a wife and kids. He's accepted in the community, but he is surviving off of that community in it and he probably loves it like if he's a decent priest and like like he's not offended by the fact that most of his parishioners are married couples that are heterosexual married couples you know what i mean it's like you could have people that don't do all the things that is the average or the norm in a, in a society who still like to be part of it and don't mind being part of it you know and who value it yeah i your, your boho kind of thing. I mean, so what? Exactly. Uh, I think that the real difference between right now between cultural left and cultural right is that the uh, progressives have abandoned any sense of gratitude and appreciation for the people who actually live normal lives and pay taxes and basically are the bulwark of the civilization. I mean, they're the ones producing the kids uh, and who are yep. transmitting a culture. Right. I totally, I totally agree, and that's like that's my point about the priest. Like the priest knows that he's, I won't say parasitical, but he's, you know, he needs there to be people that procreate and have kids and have jobs and earn the money that give donations to the church. So he's not sitting here denouncing. It's like the, it's like the cat, the Ayn Rand thing, like the Atlas shrugged idea. Like if if your Atlas holding up the world and they keep pushing down on you and criticizing you for holding them up. You shrug and you let the world collapse. You know, it's that kind of great idea. <laughs> yeah, except that we have a lot of people who are pushing down who think they don't need 
I mean, the, these these people who I mean, it's very weird for the progressives because it, 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 mainstream conservatism is just a, ver- a variety of progressivism. We've always known this because they like the main institutions. They're not fighting against Social Security, really. Uh, they like the main institutions, but they always had gratitude about the people who paid taxes and and they honored people who did things. Progressives today right. don't seem Definitely. to have that at all. They seem to hate them. And they no, think that, it's, it's just the Obama thing. You didn't build that. You didn't build that, so you can't complain if we tax you. This is where I'm actually the most conservative because I think that attitude is actually about as evil as anything in, in, in politics today. It's malign yeah. and it's destructive. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, so my... So, I think we're on the same page here. Yeah, so... I don't consider myself either right or left, and I think it's important not to be right or left in politics for a libertarian. However, I like rightists now more than I like leftists because leftists seem to abandon parts of civilization that I don't, that I think can't be abandoned. Well, yeah, so I heard an interesting conversation the other day. It made me think it was about this cancel culture that we have now, which I think is completely insane, and it's a leftist thing. But someone said, well, we had, we had a cancel culture in the 50s with McCarthyism, and – you know, there's a point. Uh, it, I mean, you could also say that like Islam is horrible, and, but and people say, well, Christianity was just as bad. It's like, well, I don't know if they ever was just as bad, but they were worse in the past. But now they don't have power and they're more tolerant. Um, and so today, like, is I think Islam is far worse than Christianity today um, because Christianity has been integrated. With Western sort of cosmopolitanism or whatever, you know, and likewise, maybe the conservatives in the past were as bad as the liberals are now, but right now it's the it's the it's the left that's horrific um, with this cancel culture kind of stuff and this SJW stuff, and it's the right that seems to be more tolerant. And I know lefties and liberals. When I say this, they don't they don't see it that way, or they can't they can't see it that way. But that's the way it seems to me. And I'm a, I feel like I'm like an outsider because I'm a libertarian, so I'm not either one. But it seems to me that the which is again why I asked you like so I'm not indifferent as to who wins. I really I hate to say it, but I hope Trump wins. I hate to say it, but oh, I just yeah. I I am really terrified of 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 Biden. Kamala winning. I'm terrified of it. Yeah, the only good thing about them winning, in my opinion, is that the riots will stop. <laughs> well, if they win and the and the Republicans somehow maintain control of the Senate, then I'm not too worried. But if they get control of the Senate and the House and the presidency, I think we're it's it's going to be. A, 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 I hate to say the end of America or something, but I. I'm a little worried that it, it could presage that. I didn't feel that way about Hillary or or Obama or Bill Clinton. I didn't feel that way, but I feel it now. And maybe it's just emotional, but... I guess partly because of Hillary and Obama didn't have huge movements behind them that hate America and hate freedom as I, we know it. They hate I, freedom. I, I don't... They would not have... They would not have talked about a Green New Deal. Uh, yes. Well, maybe I'm... Uh, free... Co- this whole thing about free college for everyone and forgiving student loans, what the hell are they even talking about? It's just like 
Well, there's certainly no limits to what they'll talk about, but I don't know, and that's, a, that's, the, that's the only good thing about this, is we do have to remind ourselves that talk can sometimes be cheap, and you don't necessarily get yeah. everything you yeah. want. Well, I'm hopeful that the Democrat machine, the real power players behind the scenes, have a little bit more sense, and they're going to like only have a slow crawl towards this socialist utopia that these guys uh, want. Um, that's my only hope uh, is that they know that if they raise taxes to 75%, it's going to kill the country and it's going to be a disaster. But I don't, I really don't know. I think they're all, so many of them are so stupid and the people that vote for them are so stupid. So economically illiterate, they, they have no clue. They're also cultists. Uh, they're, they're tribalists and cultists and they really don't have any respect or even knowledge of opinions they don't hold. Uh, I have friends who are Democrats on, you know, on Facebook, and they're relentless on just a few things, and they don't have any, any sophistication about what's going on in the world. They really are. These are old people, people older than me, who are supporting SJW stuff, defending riots, uh, making fun of Trump relentlessly. That's what they do. These people are enabling some of the worst ideas in society and it just strikes me as absurd and and really dangerous. I agree, and I hate to be an alarmist, but uh, or pessimist even because I'm usually not. But uh, I, I don't know if I'm a cynic or a realist, but I'm 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 a little bit worried. Uh, my only hope is that I still think that as bad as we kind of are, most other countries are worse, and so we're still going to be relatively better. And there will be some pressure that will keep us afloat until. The techno utopia comes and liberates us. Now, if your UFO theory is correct, then that's not going to happen either because they'll stop that too. <laughs> well, that's an interesting Before question: is what are they up to on that? And I don't know what to say that, about that. Though I think that this could be well, the reason for everything could be right there. Is that it would it would just mean any predictions we have are not exactly. We don't know what to predict because we don't know what's going to come. Um, uh, but no, my, my hope for several years now has been that um, that the underlying free market that we have remaining and along with it the, the technological uh, accumulation of knowledge that we have and the slowly growing expansion of the division of labor and international trade and therefore wealth of everyone will gradually, gradually lead – us to be able to break free of the state and the state will wither away or become a husk of what it was and not be a factor anymore. I mean, this is my only hope for him. This is why I'm not an activist because I think it either is going to happen naturally or it won't, but I don't think there's anything we can do to bring it about. I could be wrong. There may be, maybe someone will come up with some super uber idea that will uh, uh, topple the state without causing us to go back to barbarism and have a Mad Max world. I don't know. I mean, cryptocurrency itself could be part of it, you know, Bitcoin. I forgot where you stand on Bitcoin, the Bitcoin type thing, crypto and all that. I am a, an enthusiastic, non-aligned spectator. <laughs> but it's interesting, right? It's an interesting it's, It is interesting. It is a very interesting time. Of course, everything about the, the, today's uh, social life is interesting. Uh, my major concern is the financial instability of the West. And yeah, and uh, it has been for 30 years. I mean, I, I, it's not my it's not my expertise, but it's certainly something I'm concerned about. 
And I, yeah. I and as I told Robert when I interviewed Robert, I don't know if you watched that episode or listened to that episode. Robert Wicks. Uh, oh no, I didn't see that. Well, I gave a theory that one of the reasons everything is so crazy right now is that on a some deep level, everybody knows that our system is unsustainable and we have this rapidly increasing debt, but we don't know what to do about it. That there's culturally, politically, no one has the will to do anything about it. And Correct. because of that, people have gone crazy and gone off in these weird directions. That's just a theory yeah. I have. And, and the COVID thing has helped unleash the the remaining limits we had on insane spending. It's like, okay, yeah, seven trillion here. So, so when the Democrat comes into office, they're going to be like, well, so what if we have a seventeen trillion dollar Green New Deal and free university tuition thing that c- increase the deficit. Apparently, the de- deficit doesn't matter. You didn't think it mattered two years ago when you voted for the COVID crap. So there are going to be no shackles on. Them. That's what that's what I'm worried about. Actually, I'm worried that yes. this, this will unleash them. And then, you know, we libertarians have been saying this for 40 years. Like, oh, this debt is crazy. It's unsustainable. It's going to result in a collapse at some point, and it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened visibly. I think it has happened imperceptibly. But anyway, well, um, that's an interesting problem because, it, in a sense, the whole financial system has been dealt with rather like how Social Security was been dealt with several times. Is it is bankrupt, and so they completely refigure the deal, and they do a lot of exactly. shifting. They do a lot of shifting, and what the general upshot for Social Security is that it's meant, meant that we've all been overburdened more than our uh, than our uh, parents and grandparents' generations have been. And and we've wasted, diverted a lot of in, uh, resources away from ourselves and our families towards other families, and also to fund continual minor league warfare. Well, then, if you think about this like a psychological, it's almost like a you know the gaslighting concept, like when you yes. sort of like make someone think they're. Cr- so if you think about it, we have this weird thing where there's this kind of subtle recognition in society that. The World War II generation was the, the so-called greatest generation, and nowadays we have a bunch of slackers and millennials right, and losers who are living in, with their parents in their basements. But the reason we have these problems is because of the accumulated crap that started with, say, with the FDR World War II generation, like the crap that they voted for. Yeah. And, and now we've created – we've ruined the black middle class with welfare, and – with the inflation and the draft and wars and the drug war and the millennials have become sort of spoiled at the same time as having like an ennui about the future because of what we've given them and they blame them for doing what we've created. So like they've inverted the pyramid, like they call the guys that caused the problem, the greatest generation and then you blame the victims of it, which is the millennials. Not that I love the millennials and am happy how they're going to vote in the next election, but it's a little bit weird. It's like gaslighting these guys. It's like, yeah, you're, you're losers. You're not the greatest generation. You, you, we're giving you this stuff. And then this whole co- free college thing drives me. It's like I don't even understand how a lefty egalitarian – the theory is that if you go to college, you make more money. So why should the average taxpayer subsidize 
people to go to college to make more money than them. It's like it's going, it's giving, taking from the poor and giving to the rich. But they don't look at it that way. This is obvious. They look at it like everybody is going to go and everybody is going to pay. So it's just like K through 12 education now. Yeah, I, I actually, I was, yeah, I've been thinking that lately. I think it's, it's, it's the expansion of the public schooling mentality. So people say, well, you have a right to go to school and the community pays for it. Yeah, so they do that from K through 12 already with public schools. So they're basically just ratcheting public schooling up another four years. Yeah. Well, that's how socialism, as we like to think of it, works, is that you start on yeah. the beginning and end of everybody's life, the arc, the arc of life. You, you're, you, you begin dependent upon your parents and you end yeah. dependent on somebody or and then you die and the state cradle to grave yeah. and, the, and the state takes over the cradle and the state takes over the grave and progressives are people who want to take over more of the middle arc of life forgetting that it's the middle arc of life where people actually go out and do things and support the cradle and the grave so this is just another element of the ratio. They want to up that ratio. They want to have fewer producers and and more dependents. And I find that on its face to be insane and stupid. But I understand where they're coming do you think, from. Do you think that's a conservative view or a liberal view or just a common sense libertarian view? Well, I just said that. The, the, well, the idea of ratios is something that yeah. I think is a common sense view of the world. And I think libertarians no, largely. I mean the fact that the fact that the the fact that you detest that sort of do you, do, would you would you say that's your conservative side or you think it's just well common sense libertarianism? It's kind of both because I think conservatives are on board on this. Conservatives like cradle yeah. and grave socialism. They don't like cradle to grave mm. socialism. Progressives mm -hmm. like cradle to grave socialism. I don't like any Dude, of it. Did you? Did you come up with that? Is yeah, that that's, 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 that's something I've been that. talking about for that's years. And that's brilliant. You should uh, write uh, that up. Yeah, I should write it up. I have a lot of ideas that I never write up. And considering that I'm writing all the time, that just seems impossible. But anyway. Cradle and grave. Cradle and grave, but not cradle to grave. Hmm. Right. Right. And, that's, and, and the, what we have now is we have a bunch of people who don't see the point of the non-socialist sector of the economy. They don't see it. They don't see why it works. And libertarians and conservatives, and this is where we're aligned, we look at them as crazy people because they're just nuts. And they are because they don't understand the world, but that doesn't stop them. And because productivity is increasing all the time among the people who actually work, because they, they can support more and more people. Yeah. So we're basically yes. we're at thin with the big-hearted moose problem is that I mean, that's the other, that's the, rather than Atlas Shrugged, you remember the Dr. Seuss story? His great libertarian story was oh. Fidwick the Big-Hearted Moose. I've heard about it. Basically, all the animals wanted to cross the river on his uh, on his antlers, and, and the more and more animals started living on his antlers. Well, at the end of the year, he just sloughs off the antlers and goes into the, <laughs> goes away from all his, all, all his uh, loafers. Uh, and uh, it's the one Dr. Seuss story you almost never see. Well, actually, the conservatives want to go from uh, conception to grave, <laughs> right? They want to protect the, the unborn fetus, too. Yeah, they do. And uh, though sometimes it's just depending, uh, uh, protecting them from people who want to kill them. So I'm not sure it's quite the same thing. But No, it's not the same. But, it's, but, there, uh, but there is an element that's a challenge to conservatives, and it's the reason we have abortion, I think, is that conservatives, if conservatives actually in our climate made sure that there weren't very many abortions, there would be a lot more children 
But because most of the people don't aren't getting married for these children, the welfare state would be heavily taxed. So here's my sort of utopian libertarian. If we had a freer, if we had a freer society and a richer society, like let's imagine us a hundred years from now, if the, if the alien UFO guys don't uh, don't don't succeed in their nefarious schemes, but uh, if we had a freer and richer society, it was which was more cosmopolitan, less religious officially or in substance, um, there would be almost no reason to abort a baby. Um, first of all, there'd probably be technology that you just like. Oh, I just found out I'm two months pregnant or one month pregnant. Okay, just take it out. And give it to someone else. Uh, like you don't need to kill it. You could probably just take it out. But the point is, there wouldn't be a stigma like, oh, you're a pregnant girl. And there'd be tons of people that could adopt it, and you wouldn't have to keep it if you didn't want to. I, it just seems like abortion would be like almost unheard of in a pro-life – I mean by that I mean pro-human right society. In fact, you, are you, you probably know Victor Komen or know of Victor Komen, right? I know of him. I've read one of his books, The Jehovah Contract. Which one did you read? Do you the remember? The Jehovah Contract. Oh, yeah, that's a cool book. In fact, I, I want to write a book, and I want to use the same title, but uh, I, one of my novel ideas is uh, like if we figured out there's a god, we, we actually – we need to find a way to kill him because he's an existential threat to humanity. I mean he's a murderous bastard, right? He he allegedly wiped out humanity after in Noah's flood, etc. And he's threatening us with eternal damnation if we don't do what he wants. The guy is like, from our point of view, even if he's good, he's actually evil because he's an existential threat. So the Jehovah contract would be a great title, but Victor took it. But he wrote another one called Solomon's Knife, and that one was about imagining a, a kind of slightly future world where there's something called transoption, which is a medical procedure where if a woman gets pregnant – Instead of aborting the baby or having to wait and deliver it and adopt it, you could transopt it. You could transplant it to another woman's uterus or womb who wanted the baby. So it would like it's a it's a it's an ethical sort of dilemma. Like, is there really any excuse anymore to ever abort a baby if you could? And I think like even Walter Block's pro-abortion, what does he call it? Not trespassing. Evictionism. Uh, Addictionism. Even he says you can evict the baby, and if the only way to do it is to kill it, then so be it. But you have to do it in the in the safest way possible. And if technology allowed you to transopt it, then you'd have to like give it to someone else. So there would be no more abortions. I don't know where you stand on the abortion issue. I'm not like hyper Christian about it, but I'm way more anti-abortion now than I used to be. Maybe because I had a son and. Once you see a little baby growing inside, I mean, no, no pregnant couple that has a baby coming, they don't call it the, the fetus. You know, they think of it as their baby, and they do everything they can to protect the health of the mother and have a healthy baby and the whole deal. You know, it's not an emotional, or it's it's like an emotional stance or argument, but I, I'm I'm way more anti-abortion than I used to be. Although I still think, you know. It should be legal and come on. Yeah, you, I, I've become abortion? more anti-abortion as time has gone on as well. 
partly for reasons you've given, though I've not had children myself, but uh, or right, but uh, but also. I used to make a joke back in the 90s or 80s and 90s about how I enjoyed uh, feminists demanding abortion rights because I wanted to have a, a basically a stopple card to play when they talked about men being violent. I says, look at women kill more babies than uh, more human beings than anyone else on the planet right now. Uh, and you don't have any you don't have no cause to, to complain about male violence at this point. And uh, this was a sort of a cynical joke I used to play against uh, in, in debates, which, of course, endeared me to everyone. Uh, that is, no one. Uh, but now I actually regard that as too, <laughs> that is, I regard it as kind of serious, is that I think it has corrupted yeah. the left by being so anti-humanist about this thing, is that they've become less responsibilitarian. They've become less interested in yeah. responsibility by being able to kill the projects of their of their natural sexual intercourse. And I think this is bad. This has been yeah. bad culturally for them. Well, I think so. And you hear, you know, you hear stories about some of these women who've had like you know, 23 abortions. They, they use it as, you know, it's a method of birth control. I'm not saying it's common, but they have such a cavalier attitude towards it. Like, I understand uh, what you do in the private. Look, I think it's almost like the IP. Well, not to get it all comes back to IP, but for me, but of course um, it does. I was going to mention 3D printing, how that's going to help get around patents, just like the right. internet and torrenting have gotten around copyright. I think that eventually we're going to have like robot surgeons in your basement, and if a woman gets pregnant, no one's going to know, and she wants to go down into her basement and have her robot perform an abortion or take a pill or whatever. It's basically practically no one else's business, really. Right, and that's the way it probably should be. Right, but the point is, wh why would you, why would you, all right, maybe a week old, maybe a month, but why would you kill a little baby inside yourself when, when you don't need to, when there's no social stigma, no social approbation, when we're all rich, so there's really no significant cost, when there's other people who want to adopt it, when technology lets you transopt it out or something. Why would you do it? Just okay. I made a mistake. I did take my birth control, or whatever. Um, but okay, I'll learn from my mistake, and I won't get pregnant on accident next time. But I'm not going to kill this poor baby. I mean, I was adopted, and the reason I was adopted was because my birth mother, who got pregnant with me when she was 18 years old in Louisiana in 1965, refused to abort me. She could have. So. Not saying I have a personal bias, but I'm glad she didn't kill me. You know, <laughs> I mean, she did the right thing. I think. Yeah. In a, in a sense, everybody alive now is a is an abortion survivor. The option was always possible. We we could have been killed by uh, by not being wanted, and uh, and uh, that's why Kanye and others have you know turned on abortion as well as they've seen things a little bit differently. Uh, so, I have a, I, something that always perplexes me. So I, I, I think that like the liberals, they say the Democrats or the Republicans could easily win the next election by just changing one or two things, but they just never do it. So, so like the, 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 the Democrats um, are insufferably condescending to normal people, and they're just obsessed with abortion rights, like to an extreme. 
for example. Uh, and they're also obsessed with the climate change crap. And But if they would just be a little bit less condescending – I mean the Joe Sixpack guy that voted for Trump, they, they seem like natural Democrat voters, but they didn't because – they're so sick of being condescended to, and they, they, they're horrified by this Hollywood elite abortional demand kind of mentality, something like that, right? I'm simplifying. On the same token, if Donald Trump would come out tomorrow and say, you know what? I've had a – I've been reflecting on the Black Lives Matter thing, and I do think it's a shame what we've done to the black culture. We need to convene a council, and I think we need to – the first thing we need to do is just legalize marijuana on a federal level. He could he could he could probably coast into the office if he would just do that. He would piss off a few evangelicals, but you know what? They're still gonna vote for him because what else are they gonna do? Right. But right. they won't do it. And you know he doesn't give a fuck about marijuana. Right. Well he's a teetotaler in every just sense. Amazing. What's that? He's a teetotaler. He doesn't take any drugs whatsoever. No, but he's not like a more, he's not a moral majority type who cares either. Oh no, no, of course I'm not. Just he, saying yeah, that he cares nothing. I, he he could he could if he came out for marijuana legalization tomorrow, and if he had a more full throated like let's withdraw troops from the Middle East kind of thing, more than he's done in sort of like fits and starts, he could probably win. He says we're going to end the drug war to save black lives and to stop putting black men in prison. Or something like that, and he could he could issue five thousand pardons tomorrow, of black of people in federal prison for 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 nonviolent drug offenses. But they but they won't do these things that they could let them up easily win. Because I, there's something about politics that draws people towards to be as extreme as they can get away with. So they they, they go to the edge of what they can get away with, right? Yeah. They, I they, I don't know. It's just bizarre to me. But you know, it's not just Democrats and Republicans who won't do what I consider the ob. Just like that, I have the same thoughts you've had right there. Libertarians don't do it either. There are some really important things a libertarian candidate could do to get really interesting attention. Instead, we have JoJo oh. and uh, Spike talking about Black Lives Matter and how it's important to be anti-racist. <laughs> Uh, that's not the way libertarians can what get you, ahead. What, could, what, do you, what do you think they could do? What, what, what could a libertarian do that um, would make more sense? Well, for one thing, they could, uh, they could take on the deep state. Uh, they could say things that would just be shocking to Americans, and then all of a sudden, light bulbs would pop. Uh, they, could, uh, hmm. they could make people start thinking about things that they don't normally think about because they're outside of what Tom Woods calls the three-by-five card of What's allowable opinion. And... By talking about SJW stuff, Spike and JoJo are actually doubling down on the 3x5 card. And I think that's very bad for libertarians because libertarians offer something different. And if you don't find a way of leveraging your difference, you're doing absolutely no good. There's no U uh, SP. There's no unique selling proposition for libertarians right now. And one of the things libertarians could do is exactly what you said. Well, when I heard Joe... Uh jorgensen talk on tom wood's show i like i had a negative impression about her from the beginning because i'd never heard of her and i thought okay another whatever but then she kind of impressed me on the tom wood show she sounded reasonable and intelligent and i'm sure she is 
But then after the Tom Woods show, then she started all this SJW ass kissing. And it's like, oh, come on. Come on. Did you listen to Spike on uh, Dave uh, Smith's show? I think I did. And I, I, I had I had negative impressions about him before because he was the running mate of Berman Supreme, um, which is just this is this is the exact libertarian thing I'm talking about. Berman Supreme was running for LP president. This is, you know, but whatever. Um, and I think he impressed me too. He wasn't as bad as I thought he would be, from what I recall. Oh, I think he's very smart. Uh, he seems really smart. And he's not an, I mean, he's also an, has interesting things to say. But I just think that his SJW aspects are actually ruining his, his, his chance of actually making a difference. Whatever libertarians do, and the drug war has been one of them, but libertarians always approach it in such a lackluster and uninteresting way. They have no guerrilla marketing strengths whatsoever. And I, I don't think I heard. I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm not familiar with what Spike has said as SJW. I, I don't. I don't. I don't doubt you, but I, I just haven't paid attention. Well, they have a lot of Black Lives Matter stuff. They doubled down on that. They were both wearing masks once in a picture. Uh, that's the other thing. I think the Libertarian Party people should be uh, against the coronavirus lockdowns. I know they're very, very popular yeah. with stupid people and p smart people who are easily psyoped, but Libertarians have to be, un we have to be the anti-psyop. And I don't think Libertarian Party people understand that. I, I agree with you on on the Black Lives Matter thing. I've actually almost come around on it, but I, I see no problem with Agree, like just agree. Okay, it's true. Black lives matter. Well, sure. So let's diagnose the problem. What what's causing the? It's the police and it's the drug war and the various other things, right? And then Skype gave out on us. So let's wrap this up. This has been an episode of the Locofoco Netcast, which you can find at locofoco.net. I've been talking to Stephen Cancelo who blogs at stephankinsella.com. That's Stefan with an A in the second syllable. My name is Timothy workman Verkula, and I blog at workman.com. That's workman with an I, not an O. Look me up on locals.com, locofogo.locals.com to be exact. Thanks for giving us a listen. <laughs>